Grant, thank you for, uh, for that. And Robert, thank you. Uh, what a beautiful reminder, and, and what a great way to set the stage for what we're going to talk about today, because I really do want you, as much as possible this morning, to put yourself in the sandals of an Old Testament saint that's crying out to Yahweh because they lived on that side of the cross. That is our, our theme for this morning. And obviously, we're continuing on the Advent path, as Grant shared with us this morning. We're, we're counting down the Sundays to Christmas, and I'm pretty, I don't know about you, but December 22nd, we're going to celebrate in the evening, which I'm pretty excited about candlelight service, so make sure you'll be there for that. But today is the second of five Sundays of Advent. And what I want to do is try to build on what we talked about last week. If you weren't able to be with us last week, we started by laying a foundation, a foundation for the coming of the Messiah, which we read about, of course, in the Gospels. But of course, it doesn't really start in the Gospels. The story of the Messiah starts long before the Gospels. It starts way back in the beginning. It starts in Genesis. And so last Sunday, we read through Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, and we read about the story of the fall, which many of us know so well, but we also read about this incredible promise that God makes right there in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. And just to, to recap, we noted three important takeaways from last week. I'll, I'll put them on the screen. And we've, we saw all of this in the story of the fall. All of these things relate to just how gracious God was with Adam and Eve as they fell into sin. First of all, we saw that God graciously seeks out guilty sinners like you and me. Isn't that good news? Remember, he pursued Adam and Eve after they had fallen into sin. Even as they tried to hide from his presence, God came looking for his children. Secondly, God graciously shows us our sin. And you might say, well, hold on a second. I don't know if I want that. But the thing we see in the story of Adam and Eve is rather than God just commanding and condemning he asks Adam and Eve these probing questions which invite them to come out from hiding and to confess their sin to this gracious God. And lastly, and this is really the big idea from last Sunday, that God graciously provides a path to reconciliation. That's where we looked at verse 15. It's what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel. Yeah, the gospel in Genesis chapter Three. Here's what it looks like. I'll put it on the screen so that you can see exactly what I'm talking about. Here's what God said. I will put enmity or hostility between you, serpent, or you, Satan, and the woman, right? And between your seed or offspring and her seed. He, who's that? The seed of the woman will strike at your head, Satan, and you will strike at his heel. Guys, you have to understand what an amazing and gracious thing this is. Immediately after the fall in the garden, immediately, the Lord provides Adam and Eve and every generation after that with a hope for reconciliation and restoration. He doesn't wait. He doesn't wait thousands of years. He says right in that moment, here is the path that's going to be lit to salvation. And the key to knowing what that path is, is to understand who this person is in Genesis 3.15. Who is this person, this seed of the woman? Now, we know he's identified a number of ways in Scripture. He's called Messiah. He's called Savior. He's called Redeemer. He's called Servant. But here in Genesis 3, I simply call him the Serpent Striker. I know that's not quite so, doesn't roll off the tongue so well. But that's really all we know about him at this point. But here's what you need to know. This is the proverbial mother of all biblical prophecies. All of the prophecies related to this promised one, this redeemer, flow from Genesis 3.15. 
And thus we have sort of the narrative arc that carries us throughout the Old Testament and all the way into the Gospels. Who will this serpent striker be and how will he go about reconciling sinners to God? That really is the primary theme of all of Scripture. Now, having covered Genesis 3 last week and looking forward to diving into the Gospels next Sunday, that's what we're going to do. We're going to get into into Luke in particular. We have before us a huge portion of Scripture in between those two markers. Think about this. About two-thirds of the Bible exists between Genesis 3 and Matthew 1. And that's all I want to cover today. So if you thought I was crazy a couple weeks ago to cover the whole book of Romans in one sermon, how about the entire Old Testament? So... Don't panic yet. It's not going to be 65 minutes like last time, I promise you. What I want to do this morning is actually ask you to go ahead and lay your Bibles aside. I don't say that often, but we're not going to look at any one specific passage today. What we're going to do is take a stroll through the Old Testament, through the story of God and his people Israel, as we search for this serpent striker. And what we want to do is identify what I call the breadcrumbs that God leaves along the path that identify who this person is. Now, as I say that, I I recognize that sometimes I use old man metaphors, uh, breadcrumbs. I know you guys are, you're laughing at me. It's okay. How many of you guys know the story of Hansel and Gretel? Okay, good. Praise the Lord. I have to, I just always have to check with this congregation. But they went into the woods, right? And they left breadcrumbs on the path so that they could find their way back home. Well, when we look at the Old Testament prophets in particular, we begin to see breadcrumbs along this path that is going to lead us to the identity of the serpent striker. Now, how many breadcrumbs does God leave for us to figure this out? It depends on who you ask. Now, some Old Testament prophecies are are very clear. Some are much more obscure. So you can go online, look at all the lists on the internet, and you'll find anywhere from about 60 prophecies to more than 300, depending on how obscure you want to get. But again, I promise we're only going to cover about 15 today. Is that okay? You with me? Good. Before we dive in, let me leave you with a series of questions to ponder. Historical questions, biblical questions, and these are things we're not going to get to today, but I'm setting up the next couple of weeks. But I want you to think carefully about this. Why do you think most first century Jews missed Jesus as their Messiah? Why'd they miss him? Why do you think Jesus, while he was here on the earth, didn't make his identity as Messiah more clear to the people? To some extent, was God intentionally hiding his identity? Do you think first century Jews had a single set of expectations of who the Messiah would be and what he would do? Was it it a uniform opinion in the first century? Or is it possible that some of the Jews were unsure about what to look for or maybe even confused about who the Messiah would be? Were all the Jews looking intently for Messiah in that day? Or were some content to press on with their brand of Judaism without him? How did the religious authorities in Israel feel about the idea of Messiah coming back? Were they excited to see him, or were they fearful that he might arrive? My hope is is that we'll get to those answers over the next couple of weeks, because those are all important for setting the context of the Christmas story. For now, I want you to sit back and let me tell you the story of the search for the serpent striker. Because remember, everything, everything that we study in Scripture depends on who this person is. Who is he? And how is he going to reconcile us to God? So in your mind, go back to Genesis 3. The fall has taken place, and now God has laid out a series of curses upon everybody that's involved in this grievous sin. And now Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, 
and they're, they're heading east, away from the land of Eden, and they make good on God's instruction to be fruitful and multiply. In fact, in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, Eve cries out, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. But if she thought that her oldest son, Cain, was going to be the one to strike the serpent's head, she was quickly disappointed. It becomes clear already one chapter away that the sin of Adam is being passed through his seed to the next generation, and it's already got a foothold in Cain's heart. He's filled with anger and resentment towards his younger brother, Abel, when his offering to Yahweh is not favorably received. And so Cain gives into his rage. He murders his brother, and it becomes clear right there that neither of Eve's sons will be this seed through whom the curse would be reversed. So catch this now, because you have to understand, put yourself in their sandals. Adam and Eve might have thought it was the very next generation that would fix this problem. But humanity's first two hopes for redemption are taken out of the picture. Soon a third son, Seth, is born, and because of him, the text says that men begin to call on the name of the Lord, but in spite of that, by the time we get to the next chapter, Genesis 6, mankind has grown so totally wicked that God decides to scrape the earth with a flood. Imagine. But Genesis 6 introduces us to a man named Noah, whom God will spare. He'll be the man that's highlighted over the next several chapters of God's story, and the question is, is he going to be the guy? that will strike the serpent's head. And for a moment, it looks possible. In the midst of all of the wickedness on earth, Noah stands tall. He stands apart as one who listens to God and obeys God, and and God establishes a covenant with him. So clearly Noah's the redeemer, right? Unfortunately, no. Once the flood subsides, the waters recede, Noah exits the ark. He starts off well. He builds an altar to worship the Lord, but then he plants a vineyard. And he begins to sample the fruit of the vine. Let's be honest. Noah gets blackout drunk. And he drags his youngest son Ham into his sin. And so although Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord, he ultimately falls short of being the promised one. At the end of chapter 9, we get our very first breadcrumb on the path. It's a very small crumb of information, but it's important. Noah proclaims this in Genesis 9, 26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of which son? Shem. The first breadcrumb, the serpent striker, will come from the line of Shem. He will be a Semitic man. Well, that opens up the chapter of the patriarchs. Our hopes for Noah are gone, but now in Genesis 12, there's a brand new light. God has his eye on a new man named who? Abram. Later, he's going to be known as Abraham. And we're given this incredibly tempting bit of information. Once again, God God takes the initiative to establish a covenant with this man, Abraham, and he says this, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So this has to be our guy, right? I mean, you hear God's words there, right? This has got to be the guy, the seed of the woman, who's going to strike the serpent. And do things look good early on? Absolutely. Abraham responds to God by faith. He obeys the Lord, even to the point of being willing to sacrifice his his most precious son. Surely Abraham is God's redeemer, but then we see him fall into a couple of, uh, you could call them missteps, I'd call them sins. He lies about his relationship with Sarah to protect his own life. Then he attempts to force God's plan into action by, by sleeping with Hagar, his wife's servant. And as important as Abraham is in God's story, he just doesn't qualify 
as the one who will free humanity from the curse of sin. Now, Isaac, his precious son, he has potential. We sigh with relief, right, as God steps in to stop Isaac from being sacrificed. But then we see him follow in the footsteps of his father's deception, compromising his integrity in the same way that Abraham did. Now, Isaac has a son. His name is Jacob, and his story seems doomed from the very start. His very name tells you something is off about his character. He is not going to be the redeemer. He doesn't possess the qualities of the one that can conquer sin and death. In fact, quite the opposite. Jacob's story ends up being the one that highlights the amazing grace of God, that he would choose a sinner, a, a, a deceiver, like Jacob, to be in relationship with him. Remember what he does? He deceives his brother Esau. He actually conspires with his mother to steal Esau's birthright. And then when he becomes a father himself, he, he plays favorites with his 12 sons with disastrous results. And what becomes so clear from our journey with Jacob, and we read this just recently in Romans 9, right? Here's what we learn, that God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy and compassion upon who. He wants to show compassion, and we learn that from the story of Jacob. Now, among the sons of Jacob, there's only one that really shows the possibility of being the serpent striker. As Genesis closes, we see Joseph rescuing Abraham's seed from starvation in Egypt, right? Could Joseph be the promised one? Is he the guy that we're looking for? And the answer is, is no, although Joseph serves as a shadow and a type of the promised one who's to come. How? He will suffer for his people, and he will save a nation. But even as Joseph dies, and in that moment, God's people are far from the land, the land that God had promised to Abraham. Are there any other breadcrumbs that come out of Genesis? Yes, one more. First, we learn that the Redeemer will come from the line of Shem. We know he'll come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Jacob's final words, we're given the identity of the son and the tribe from which the promised Redeemer will come. Genesis 49.10, breadcrumb. The scepter will not depart. What's a scepter? It's that thing that the king holds, right? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. So we know Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Now that brings us into the period we call the wilderness Wanderings. The Lord has sovereignly worked to save his chosen seed, Abraham's seed, from both starvation and corruption by getting them to Egypt. They're under the protection of Joseph. But once Joseph dies, Israel goes into captivity. They go into slavery to the pharaohs. After 400 years in chains, Israel becomes large enough in numbers and powerful enough for God to say, it's time to deliver them. I will bring them into the land that I have promised to them. And so we get to the next stage here. Exodus 2 introduces us to the next potential serpent striker. He's a child who grows up right there in Pharaoh's household. But unfortunately, he eventually murders an Egyptian and he flees for his life out into the wilderness, out to a place called Midian. And so Moses, it turns out, will not be the promised one either. But again, like Joseph, he is a type and a shadow of the one to come. More on that in just a second. Now, God is going to use Moses greatly, right? He's going to use him as his tool of leadership to deliver his people out of Egypt and to take them out into the arid desert of the Sinai Peninsula. And it's there that the people begin to grumble, correct? 
They grumble against God. They grumble against Moses' leadership. And they actually cry to go back to Egypt, back to the, the comfortable life in Egypt, even if it means going back into slavery. Hard to imagine. And then adding insult to injury while Moses is on the holy mountain receiving God's law. The people manipulate and persuade Aaron, his brother, to fashion an idol of gold that they can worship. They have turned their back on Yahweh completely in the middle of the desert. Frankly, at that moment, the whole game appears to be over. It looks like God has reached his limit of patience. Maybe, it's, maybe he's going to do what he did in the days of Noah. Maybe it's time to just get rid of these people. They are a faithless people. But in that critical moment, Moses does something amazing. He cries out to God. And he reminds God about the great covenant that he's made with Israel. And God is pleased with Moses in that moment. And God relents from his righteous anger. That is where Moses becomes a type of the Redeemer to come, a shadow of the one to come. He intercedes for the people. Catch that now. He intercedes for the people and saves them from God's wrath. He is a type of the one to come. Now, before his death in Deuteronomy 18, we get another breadcrumb from God. It comes from Moses. He says to the people before the end of the promised land, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Now, how do we know for sure that this is a reference to Messiah and not just a reference to any old prophet? Well, 1,500 years later, the New Testament authors confirm this reference, including Peter, who quotes that very verse in his sermon in the temple in Acts chapter 3. This prophet is the one to come, the redeemer, the serpent striker. And so Deuteronomy closes with the death of Moses and the passing of the mantle to who? To Joshua. And with Joshua, the tension in the story rises again. Maybe Joshua is the guy. Joshua is one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. He is an amazing leader. Maybe he's going to be the one. He's going to lead the people into the promised land, and he will be the one to reverse the curse and conquer sin and death and, and strike the serpent. And it's true. Yahweh gives Joshua great success in battle. And in fact, you may not know this, but Joshua is really the first significant Old Testament character who doesn't lie, doesn't steal, doesn't murder, or doesn't commit idolatry. I mean, the next time somebody tells you, I, you know, I could never be a, a really great Christian because the biblical characters are so righteous. No. Joshua really is a unique guy. There is great hope that he is going to be the one. But by the time he passes away, Israel's in a bad state. They have failed to drive the Canaanites out of the land. And worse, as they've lived among the Canaanites, they've entangled themselves with foreign gods and idols. And so great leader that he was, Joshua was unable to sever the people from their bondage to sin. And the mystery of God's sovereign plan continues. If you'd asked Adam and Eve at this point, could you imagine that it would have taken this long for the serpent striker to arrive? They would have said, I never would have guessed. But the mystery goes on. After Joshua's death, Israel suffers a depressing loss of national leadership. Just to keep his people from being overrun by foreign enemies, God raises up a string of judges, military leaders who fend off the enemies that surround them. But get this now, spiritually, Israel enters into its darkest period, the period of the judges. By the end of the book of Judges, there is no spiritual leadership happening at all. It's said at the very end that everyone in the land is doing whatever seems right in his own eyes. Can you imagine? No spiritual leadership. Everyone, it's a free-for-all. Everybody do what you feel like you need to do. 
It's Yahweh's last appointed judge, Samuel, who is going to functionally transition the nation from the judges into a monarchy. Now, why? Why a king? Because the people demanded it. They weren't content to have Yahweh as their king. They said, no, give us a physical king, one that we can see, one that we can follow. And what's most distressing is they said, give us a king like all the other pagan nations have. Can you imagine the disappointment Yahweh must have felt? And so God gives them what they want. God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? When we ask for ungodly things. He gives them a king that looks great on the outside. Everything they could have wanted, but he's not a man after God's heart. It doesn't take long for us to realize that King Saul is far from being the promised redeemer. And ultimately, Yahweh has to depose him for a series of sins that just show that he's unworthy of the mantle. Now, that's a key moment in Israel's history, right? Because who's up next? David. This is where David is now woven into the fabric of this Old Testament story. And let's be honest, the depiction we first get of David, it doesn't sound that promising, does it? I mean, this is a young guy who can't even fit into the king's armor to go out and fight Goliath. How is he going to be ruler over all of Israel? But God is with him. And God prospers him in battle, and he prospers him in reputation among the people. And just when we begin to think, you know what? Maybe David is the serpent striker. The people would have said, this is the guy that we've been waiting for. And we're disappointed once again. His abuse of power is king. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, using the office of the king to sin. And then he tries to cover it up by committing murder, of all things. Even later, he refuses to execute justice when his own son, Amnon, rapes his daughter. David is not the serpent striker either. Yet still, in his remarkable grace, God sees fit to make a covenant with David. God is sovereign. And in spite of David's sin, he is declared to be a man after God's own heart. And so he becomes this key figure in God's unfolding plan to strike the serpent and to save humanity. Listen to what David This is what God says in 2 Samuel 7 about David. God says, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever is a big word, isn't it? My faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, David, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Guys, this is a giant breadcrumb. This is a whole loaf of bread that God drops in the path. This is a big moment. Yahweh promises David an eternal throne. So it's from David's seed and from his dynastic line that the Messiah will come. So recap, from the seed of Adam to Shem to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Judah, and now through David. A redeemer and a king will come, one who will strike the serpent. Now, one of the outstanding features of David's life is his poetry and his music writing that we read all over the Psalms. In fact, nearly half of the Psalms that we have, the 150 Psalms, are attributed to David. And a number of them are absolutely outstanding in terms of these breadcrumbs, messianic prophecy. For example, listen to his description of how the Savior will one day be betrayed, suffer, and die. 
You'll see the references on the screen. This is Psalm 41. It says this, My enemies speak maliciously about me. They plan to harm me. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. You can hear the, literally the footsteps of Judas Iscariot in those words. Psalm 22, no doubt a graphic description of crucifixion. By the way, written long before the idea of crucifixion was ever even invented by the Romans. Psalm 22, I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Crucifixion. Psalm 69. You know the insults I endure, my shame and disgrace. You are aware of all my adversaries. They give me Gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Exactly what the Roman soldiers offered their crucified victims in the first century. But then listen to what is prophesied after Messiah dies. Psalm 16. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. It's a description, folks, that the soul of the Redeemer will be preserved. His body will not stay in the ground, but will be resurrected to life. And finally here, David described what can only be interpreted as God the Father installing this Redeemer at his very right hand in the heavenly places. Psalm 110.1. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. A verse which, of course, gets picked up in Hebrews 1 as a prophecy related to the Christ. So David has all these incredible messianic psalms for us to look at, plus the Davidic covenant we see in 2 Samuel 7. Massive breadcrumbs on the path to the Messiah. Who's next on the stage after David? Well, the very one promised in 2 Samuel 7, one that comes from David's own body, the one whom God promises to establish and if David is only a type of the Redeemer to come, then maybe we're just waiting for his son, Solomon. Solomon will be the one to strike the serpent. He will be the promised Redeemer, right? Oh, Solomon. Solomon, Solomon, right? He starts out so well. So much wisdom wasted. Once again, we see a leader falling so short of being the promised one. In the process of ruling Israel with unprecedented wealth and power. Solomon is swept away into all forms of compromise and idolatry. And then just to seal his legacy as a failed king, his son Rehoboam is even worse. It's his foolishness that splits the kingdom of Israel into two rival kingdoms, north and south, never to be reunited again. Solomon and Rehoboam. Friends, that, what I just described, is considered to be the golden age of Israel the kingdom of David, and the kingdom of Solomon. But as we close that chapter, we head into a far less stable era. And as you do that, you close this, you're like, okay, it's not David, it's not Solomon. You begin to think maybe God has forsaken his people. 
Maybe the prom- we got the promise wrong from Genesis 3. Maybe there is no serpent striker coming. Maybe it'll never happen. And over the next 500 plus years, we get just a brief glimmer of hope in just a few earthly kings. Guys like Hezekiah and Josiah, men who rule in the southern kingdom of Judah. In the north, how many godly kings do we have? None. Nothing but darkness and wickedness in the north. How's this going to work out? How how are we going to find the serpent striker when there's no godliness in the land? But here's the thing. Just as things begin to look even more bleak, God begins to do something interesting. He begins to speak more often and more clearly through men that he would send to both kingdoms, both north and south. Over and over again, he would send prophets to drop more breadcrumbs. More breadcrumbs about the coming Redeemer King. The time was drawing near. God was getting closer and closer to acting decisively in history. But again, the question is, where does this guy come from? Who is he? The prophets begin to speak of one who would do two particular things. First of all, he would bear the sins of the people. And second of all, he would come as a king on the throne of his father, David. Where is this guy? Who is he? Now, no single prophet gives us the full picture, but if you take them together, what you begin to see is they're pointing to somebody who's going to be far different from any of the men we've talked about so far. This is key, because every time the seed of man goes to the next generation, things get better or worse. Worse. More sin. So they begin to point to somebody who is very unique, very different from any of those men, no matter how wonderful you think those men were in terms of leadership or spirituality They all fall so short, but there's one coming who is very, very unique. It wasn't going to happen at the hands of a sinner. The Redeemer would have to be a completely unique type of person, a -a one-of-a-kind seed, and here's the key, not a human at all, not a mere human at all. And so Isaiah, writing in the last half of the 8th century B.C., has the most to say about this promised one. Let me share a couple of these important verses. Again, the references are on the screen to you. Speaking of his birth, the way he is going to arrive in the world, in Isaiah 7, he writes, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Here's another breadcrumb, a big one. In Hebrew, this one will be called Emmanuel, literally, with us is God. And somehow, miraculously, we see this person is going to make its entrance into this world by way of a virgin. That's, that's pretty unique. But it takes us back to Genesis 3. Remember Genesis 3.15? It talked about what? The seed of the woman. A completely unique phrase you see nowhere else in Scripture. It's always the seed of the man. But in Genesis 3, it's the seed of the woman. And so we begin to see that the serpent striker will be born, not of any man's seed, but of woman alone. Yeah, he's going to be unique, that's for sure. Isaiah continues, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, which tells us he'll be born of the flesh, and the government will be on his shoulders. So he'll be a king. But then Isaiah gives us four compound names in the Hebrew. For amazing, remember, in Hebrew, when you get a name, it says something about your character. And so he gives us these four amazing defining character traits of this serpent striker. First of all, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. 
Now, when we hear wonderful, we think really good or excellent. But in Hebrew, that word means, the English word, wonder. It's something beyond human imagination. And so practically what this means is this redeemer is going to possess wisdom and counsel beyond even human understanding. He can't be a mere human. Second, to be called mighty God. Now that's interesting. Someone who's physically born of the flesh is going to be referred to as Elohim. He'll be called God. And that won't be blasphemy. Right? Because we know how the Jews feel about the name Elohim. We know how the Jews feel about calling a man God, but this won't be blasphemy. He'll be mighty, gibor in Hebrew, which means strong and heroic. Practically, as God, this person would be all-powerful. Perhaps even the creator himself. He would have divine power over nature. He would have the power to heal disease. He would have the power to drive out demons and so much more if he's mighty God in the flesh. Amazing. He'll be called everlasting father. Again, what kind of a person is born of the flesh, born within time and space, but then is said to be everlasting or eternal? How is that possible? And then he'd be called some kind of a father, an authority figure. Practically, this would mean two things. This person, this redeemer, this serpent striker would have to be pre-existent from eternity past. And logically, he would have to be self-existent. He would have to be like the great I am for him to fulfill this idea of being an everlasting father, a non-contingent being taking on flesh. Unheard of, right? And lastly, he'd be called Prince of Peace. So he'll have a royal office, and he'll do what no leader before him can do. He'll establish an eternal peace for Israel. And after listing these four incredible compound descriptions, Isaiah goes on. He says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. None. What human leader has established an eternal peace? He goes on, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and, here's that word again, forever. So he will be a king in the line of David, but unlike David, he will rule with absolute justice and righteousness. And how many Jewish kings have we seen from Isaiah to Malachi who fit that description? Not even close. So you summarize all that in Isaiah, and it blows your mind, right? He's a human king, born of a virgin, but who at the same time is eternal in nature, is called Elohim, and he's a ruler who's perfect in nature and sits on a throne that will never end. But wait, there's more. Isaiah has an even lesser-known prophecy just before this, that's quite specific about where this future Redeemer will operate from. You see it there on the screen. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. You, you might be tempted to read right over this, but this is amazing. It says, The gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, bonus points for anybody who knows where those two tribes settled in the promised land. Up in the north the northern part of what we call Israel today. Isaiah continues, But in the future he'll bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee. To Galilee. And the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of dark. They, Galilee was considered the land of darkness, but a light is coming there. 
And so the truth is going to bring honor, not to where you would expect. If you were an elite Jew, you said, no, no, the light's coming to Jerusalem. It's coming to Judea. But Isaiah says, no, it's coming to the north, to the region of Galilee. Amazing stuff, you guys. Breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs. Can you see him? Can you see who the Messiah is going to be? He's going to be unique. He's going to be unique. Now, with all that being said, and all that's quite wonderful by itself, the greatest breadcrumb that Isaiah leaves is not the description of his birth or his rule, but his death, his suffering and his death. From Isaiah 52, 13, through the entire chapter of Isaiah 53. Read it, meditate on it this Christmas. It's a big part of the story, isn't it? Have you noticed, by the way, we have our manger up here, but it's wrapped in red cloth? The manger and the cross fit together, don't they? And so, yeah, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, we love those at Christmas time. But what about Isaiah 53? Let me give you a quick rundown of some of the things that Isaiah says there. The serpent striker will be despised and rejected by the people, yet like a lamb going to slaughter, he will not open his mouth to defend himself. He will suffer greatly, bearing in his body our sickness and our pain. He will be pierced because of our rebellious hearts. He will be crushed for our sin. He will be so badly disfigured that his appearance will be an appalling sight. The punishment that we deserve will fall upon his head, and his suffering somehow will heal our wounds. He will intercede for rebels like us, and his death will justify many. And shockingly, it will be God himself who will crush this man, presenting him as a guilt offering on our behalf. In his death, he'll be assigned to the grave of a rich man, but after his anguish is complete, he will see the light and be satisfied. And finally, he will bring salvation to many nations. In fact, he will be so great that because of him, kings will shut their mouths in awe. All of these things Isaiah says about the serpent striker of Genesis 3. And the picture begins to come into focus, right? We begin to see more about who this person will be. Now, Isaiah's not the only one. Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah, he adds this amazing detail in Micah 5.2. He says, Bethlehem, Ephratah. You're small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. And you're thinking, okay, well, a king's coming from Bethlehem. Big deal. He goes on. His origin is from long ago, from the days of eternity. So we keep seeing this words, these words, eternal, eternity, forever. This can't be a mere human being. How could you think this could be a man? A very specific town from which the serpent striker is going to come. Bethlehem in the Hebrew, right? The house of bread, the city of David. Clearly, this one will be greater than David, though, because he doesn't just come from Bethlehem. He comes from eternity past. Amazing stuff. Now, if we press forward in Israel's history into the exile of Judah to Babylon, we come upon the, upon the prophet Daniel, who in the 6th century B.C. gets a vision from God. And listen to this. He says, As I kept watching, thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. Daniel's bringing us into the very throne room of God in this vision. The Ancient of Days sits in his throne chair. He goes on. His clothing was white like snow. And the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. How many of you guys want to see this someday, right? Pretty cool. 
A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him. And the court was convened and the books were opened. What a scene, right? And then we get this important visitor who comes into God's court. Who is this person? Daniel continues, I watched in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man. Someone who has the the representative image of of a human being. One like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. How dare he, right? And was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Friends, listen to me on this. Does God ever share his glory with a human being? He will not. He will not share his glory with any man. And yet here in this vision, this son of man is given both dominion and glory by God himself. God gives this this son of man glory and a dominion. Not only that, but it's an everlasting rule that will never pass away. This is our redeemer king. This is the one who is qualified to stand in the presence of Yahweh. Writing after Daniel, the prophet Zechariah also has much to say about this. Next to Isaiah, he's the one who's the most prolific in his descriptions of Messiah. And like Micah, he has one prophecy that is extremely specific. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. Hmm. Why would a great king ride a donkey? Why wouldn't he come like a boss, right? On a stallion with his armor and all that stuff. But here we have this this other picture of the Redeemer King. The serpent striker will come in humility. How, How unusual it is for mighty God to come in humility. The picture becomes more and more in focus, right? He also picks up on Isaiah's description of the Savior being pierced. But Zechariah does something very interesting, and we'll get to this in the coming weeks. He weaves in the language of suffering of this Redeemer with the language of war. He says in Zechariah chapter 12, On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they've pierced. We pierced God? They'll look on me whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Did you catch the pronoun there? It's God speaking and he says of Israel that they will look at me whom they have pierced. Is this another indication that the serpent striker will be God himself and the focus comes in even more, right? But how can that be if he's born of the flesh, if he's born of the seed of the woman? This is the mystery. Closing out the Old Testament canon, late 5th century B.C., we come to Malachi, and he drops the final breadcrumb in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. God declares this, see, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. 
Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he's coming. Now we're getting close to the moment, aren't we? But what we see there in Malachi is this commingling of language between God and man, between spiritual and physical. Again, this is God speaking here, and he says that the way will be cleared for him to come. Meaning that he, the Lord himself, is coming to earth. Is that not stunning? How does that work? That Elohim, that mighty God, will actually come to earth, and then it says he'll come to a physical structure, to the temple in Jerusalem. And it's his temple. Well, who does the temple belong to? Not to any man, but to God alone. This language is so powerful, you guys. All of this sets up the answer to some of those key questions I asked at the beginning, and we'll look at them beginning next Sunday. But are you seeing how the picture, it starts out sort of vague, and then the focus comes in, and the bread comes get dropped? And so what were the Jews thinking in the first century? Do we just have amazing hindsight to look back and go, oh, this was so obvious? We'll pick up on that next week. But I want to ask this question as we close. What are the odds that there's a person in human history whose identity in life not only fit those 15 prophecies that I just covered, but all the rest of them in the Old Testament? What are the odds? Keep in mind that many of these things are out of human control. You can't, you can't manipulate circumstances to make these things happen. You can't determine your own ancestors. I mean, none of you guys did, right? You can't control your birth location. You can't exact, you know, put together the exact circumstances of how you're going to die. And so experts have looked at the odds of one person fulfilling all these prophecies, and you know what they've concluded? There are no probability formulas that work. I mean, the virgin birth alone sort of blows up the probability chart, doesn't it? And so mathematicians have tried to look at it, and it's all these numbers, it's well beyond me, Carly will help me later on, maybe explain it to me, uh, or Ryan, all these numbers to the 10th power or whatever. It, basically, it falls under the category of impossible. That any one person, any one identity in life could match up with all of these prophecies. And yet, by all accounts, there is a single man who walked the earth. A very unique man whose life, by the way, this is what cracks me up, whose life, by the way, is more documented with more manuscript evidence than any man of antiquity. It's not like somebody got this one little obscure reference out here. More manuscript evidence for this single man who fulfills all these prophecies than any man of antiquity. Do you believe? Why didn't the Jews believe? Why did they miss this? But what a praise, right? By all accounts, this one man's identity and life match all of those breadcrumbs from Genesis 3 to Malachi 3. What a praise that after all of this long list of men who came and failed to qualify as the serpent striker, that Jesus of Nazareth alone has come to set his people free from the curse that Adam and Eve brought upon the world so long ago. He is the one. The Apostle John made it clear. He said, these things, he says, have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Redeemer, that he is the serpent striker, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's only one. 
We started out with our call to worship from Luke 24. This is what the risen Christ says. This is, this is the serpent striker himself speaking in Luke 24. And he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, all that stuff in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew canon, everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then he finishes with that statement, you, my friends, you, my friends, are witnesses of these things. And I say to you this morning, Oak Hill, you are witnesses of these things. You've seen them in God's very word. Do you believe? And if you believe, what will you do with it? We have so much more to talk about in the coming weeks. Will you come back? Good, let's pray.